0: You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in depth verse by verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We've been walking through uh, the section in verse 14 down to verse 21. And I know that the last couple of times we've read this entire section, but just want to uh, read it again just so it's fresh in front of us this morning. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all, all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a powerful passage. Uh, over the last couple of times, we've been looking at verse 14. <clears throat> we kind of gave an overview and looked at why Paul begins with the for this reason. Uh, last time, we looked at this idea of the I bow my knees before the Father, and we're talking was talking about the posture of prayer, Uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to pick up this idea at the end of verse 14 through verse 15. And uh, if you have your Bibles, just want to reread that really quickly. Paul says in verse 14 and 15, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Uh, It's really interesting that Paul in this passage is using a play on words in the Greek. Uh, The the Greek word for father is pater, and the word for family is patria, and they both have the same kind of root. And so it's interesting that what Paul is saying is, oh, I'm praying before the father from whom all the outflow of the father is named. Does that make any sense? So he's using this fun play on words in the Greek, uh, which we tend to miss in the English, Uh, but I just want you to know it's there. And I, I do think it's significant because as, as you get into the passage, there seems to be a, a, an emphasis on this idea that God is the source and the originator of all fatherhood. Now, if you, now everyone here uh, went and saw the Show Me the Father movie this last weekend, uh, but for those who are watching or listening who did not see the new Kendrick film, uh, the Show Me the Father actually pulls on that idea, and actually I thought it was a really great enunciation of it, that that when you look at God as father, you realize it's not that he created fathers, this idea of family and and fatherhood, and said, you know what? That's really what I'm like. It's that he himself is a father, and he says, how, how do I demonstrate, how am I gonna showcase the reality of me being a father? And so he created this thing called fatherhood to be a reflection of the fatherhood. Does that make sense? And of course, All of these little versions of fatherhood, as we we experience them, none of them are perfect. But yet, they're supposed to be a a picture. They're supposed to bear the reflection of. They're they're supposed to have the the tenor or the tone of the father. In other words, when we look at fatherhood in the human sense, in, in the family sense, we should go, wow, that is just like God. Now, the problem with that is when you get a twisted or warped or a problematic father, we presume that God's just like that. And of course, we have all these uh, skewed pictures of, father, uh, of God because of the skewed pictures of, of fatherhood that we've seen or experienced. And so there's a tension in all that, but in the passage, I just think it's a phenomenal thought that there's an emphasis in the passage that God is the originator uh, of, of fatherhood, that, that he's the one who established this thing, that, that he's the one who brought it into being, you guys awake this morning? Some of you look dead. <laughs> so as we get into this idea, then you need to understand that Paul is saying, "Here I am. I am bowing my knees before the Father, from whom all every family in heaven and earth is named." And he's pulling on this idea that that the fatherhood that you experience, or that you get to be, if you're a, if you're a man with a wife and kids, and you know that. I thought I'd at least cl- clarify for our culture today. Uh, but, but hey, if you get to be a father, then you are to be a reflection of the reality of God himself. And therefore, you should not take your responsibility lightly. Why? Because you are showcasing the reality of, of God to your world. That when someone looks at your life as a father, they should go, wow, that's just like God. Just like if you're married, they should be able to look at your marriage and go, wow. Your marriage is just like God. And this reality of the, the groom and the bride thing that Paul emphasizes. Ah, so there's that, that whole idea. And again, if I would encourage everybody who hasn't seen it to watch this Show Me the Father movie. And uh, I love that. I don't know if you saw that graphic, but there's that wonderful graphic that they show that, that here's the Father, here's God as the source of fatherhood, and there's the extensions around it, that as a father, and here's the list that they gave, that you're to be an encourager, A provider, a leader, a teacher, a protector, a helper, and friend. Biblically, why? Because that's what the Father does in our lives, which I just think is a phenomenal thought. So there's that idea contained uh, in our passage. Uh, What's also interesting is in the passage, Paul is pulling on this idea of relationship and intimacy that here he is and he is praying before the Father. And, And you understand that in the Old Testament, uh, God was distant. He was out there somewhere. Uh, that I, I did not have access. That the access to the presence of God was forbidden. That there's only one person on one day a year who could actually enter the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, which was the high priest on the day of atonement. Which, by the way, is this week. It's exciting. Uh, but hey, uh, the high priest on the day of atonement would enter into the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> He's the only one who had direct access to the very presence of God, but that was only once a year. And so there's this idea that when we call God Father, and, and you see this in the life of Jesus, but when you call God Father, you're bespeaking of a relational thing. It's an intimate kind of a thing. It's a it's not a distant out there. I'm not praying in a posture to a God who's out there. Paul says, I am praying in a posture of relationship and intimacy with a God who now indwells my life here. So, because of Christ, and because of what I have gained through Christ at the cross, do you realize that Paul is saying that he is bowing his knees before the Father in whom he has intimacy and relationship, and he has the ear of the Father, and just like a good child—I don't know—I don't know if you guys ever saw that old picture uh, of—I think it's JFK Jr. And so here's the Oval Office, and the president is sitting at the big desk, and he's in an important meeting. And then here's his son down below the desk playing with the truck. And you're like, how on earth did he get access to the Oval Office? Because if I try to get into the Oval Office and I go, I just want to sit underneath the desk and play with the truck, <laughs> uh, they would shoot me, you know? <laughs> they are not going to give me access. So why does this little kid have access? Because that's his father. And isn't it any neat thought that in prayer, you can boldly enter into the throne room of grace? Why? Because you've been adopted in. And now you have intimacy with the one to whom you are praying. And so think about this. Paul is, is bowing his knees before the Father, and he's saying, I'm not just, I'm not just throwing out this prayer, and maybe God out there some somewhere, somewhere will hear it. He's saying, The one to whom I am praying, I, I have intimacy and and relationship and, and access. In fact, Paul's been saying this all throughout the book of Ephesians. For example, in Ephesians 2, verse 18, Paul says, for through Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So how do we access the Father? Well, it's through Jesus. Uh, In a few verses prior to ours, in verse 12, Paul says that in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So here's Paul then. He's saying, okay, I'm in this posture of prayer in this great position of pleading, but to one to whom I am praying and pleading, I have intimacy and relationship because he's my dad. So there's that idea contained in the passage, which I just think is beautiful. Uh, And there's also this interesting idea. Sorry, I'm just kind of throwing a whole bunch of stuff at you this morning. Uh, But there's also this idea in the passage of the the everywhere idea with the fatherhood thing. When we're looking at this idea of father, he says, "From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name." Now that really bothered me because <laughs> I'm like, "What on earth is he saying?" Because if every if every family has been named by the father, okay, I'm fine with that. On Earth, I'm okay with that. In heaven what do you do with that one? <laughs> you know? And so I was, I was looking and I was studying and I, was, I decided to look up some of the scholars and some of the scholars say, well, he could be referring to like Christians throughout history, past, the ones who are in heaven, present, the ones who are now, future, and that, that might be correct. Uh, some say, well, no, he's probably, he, he's, he's picking up on the Jewish language of the in heaven thing, and he's talking about the angelic realm. And I was like, well, that's weird, because I didn't, I didn't think angels could be fathers. <laughs> but so let me give you a couple quotes. I think this may help us. Uh, let me just give you three quick quotes from some of the scholars on this particular idea of the heaven in heaven and earth, because I think they can say it better than I could ever try to. So one scholar said this, the verse affirms that the father is the creator of all living beings so that their existence and significance depends on him. And what he was pulling at is this idea that whether it's the angelic realm or whether it's humanity, do you realize that God is the father of all? He's the originator. He's the source, the creator of them all. So as such, he's in a position of father in both heaven and on earth. Does that make sense? I presume. Right? Uh, another scholar says that uh, Paul is emphasizing that God is the God of all nations, all peoples, all tribes, and languages. Because when you look at that, that word family, uh, what's interesting is that word family, when you, when you look it up, especially in the Old Testament, that Greek word in the Old Testament, it refers to tribes, it re- refers to families, it refers to nations, it refers to tongues, it has that, that idea of, of all these people groups. And so the scholar says... That Paul is emphasizing that God is the God of all nations, peoples, tribes, and languages, both in the past, the now, and until Christ returns. So therefore, Paul's mention of heaven emphasizes God's power and fatherly care over humanity. And it is to this God that Paul prays. I thought it was kind of neat. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, as creator, God is the father of each man. But as savior, he is only the father to those who believe. And I loved his distinction that, as Creator, God is in a position of fatherhood over all created of all creation. That that He is the originator; He is the source of it all. And yet, in an intimate, personal sense, it is only those who have received received Him right by believing on Jesus that we actually get to call Him intimately as Father. So He is Father as the source of an. Ex- uh, creator of all things, but he is intimately father of those who believe, which I thought was kind of a neat idea. So I bring all that up just to point out the fact that Paul is using this idea of, hey, I'm praying before the father who's over all in heaven and on earth. And again, that language he's used all throughout the book of Ephesians, that Jesus is in a position far above all principality, power, might, dominion in the heavenly realms as well as the earthly realms. That, that, that here is God who is overall. He is the sustainer of all. He is the creator of all, right? He, it's that idea. What I really want to focus on, though, <clears throat> is this idea of the name. Because he says, okay, here I am. I'm praying to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Uh, I've said this so many times, and, and I'm going to keep repeating it because I think it's important, <clears throat> but a name is not just a name. Now, we understand in the context of the passage, what he's talking about is that fatherly name that is passed down to generation to generation to generation. That, that as, as the as the father, what is he doing? He has a lineage that he's bringing about. That he is the source of it all and that, that he is he's giving his name. But again, a name is not just a name. So, you know, we have kids today and we, so we call them Bob and Joseph and Josephine and Jaquita and Bertha and whatever it is that you want to name your kids, right? So we have these great names to name our kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. But biblically, when you named a kid, it wasn't just a name. The name was symbolic of something. The name was a picture of character. A name was a picture of nature. Uh, The name was a picture of the inner life stuff. The name was a picture of identity, so when you are blessing a child with a name, in one sense, you are pronouncing an identity upon that child. So names are really significant. And of course, I've used the example, which I absolutely love, is the, uh, the name Job, or Yob, right? Because the J is not in the Hebrew, so it'd be Yob, And uh, the name Job, Job means... Hated and despised, which I think is hilarious, because what parent has the gall and the gumption to look at their little child? Coochie coochie goo. What do we call it? Hated and despised. <laughs> you know, that is miserable. Uh, you have names like Jesus, right? The name Yeshua. Jesus means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation, which is what Jesus is. That's his identity. What is Jesus? He is salvation itself. He doesn't merely bring salvation, that's true, but he is salvation itself. That's his identity. You you have names like one of my favorites, Nathan. (laughs) And I may be biased, but... I like the name Nathan. Why? Because it means a gift from God. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Ah, uh, there's that. There's that great. Uh, uh, there's that great name in Scripture, Nabal, and uh, I, I love this. This is uh, 1 Samuel twenty-five twenty-five, and of course it's the whole you know uh, David and Abigail thing. And she comes to David because he's, he's, he's angry because they, didn't, they weren't hospitable, and Nabal's just being a jerk. And uh, his wife comes out and goes, Please, do not let my Lord, he's speaking of David, pay attention to this worthless man. She's speaking about her husband. <laughs> she says, Please don't pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. So think about this. She runs up to David and she goes, look, 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 please, please ignore the fact that my husband is doing what he's doing. He's worthless. He's a fool. In fact, she goes on and says, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Do you know what the name Nabal means? Idiot. Okay, well, it means foolish or folly, but that's what she's saying. She's saying, look, please, please don't account this merely to his foolishness because his name is Nabal. Meaning, that's his identity. And is it interesting? And this should make sense to you, that, hey, when someone calls you something, you tend to live into it. Uh, you have this father who looks at this little kid and says, hey, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. Guess what that kid grows up becoming? Hey, you're nothing, you're nobody. Guess what that kid becomes? Because it becomes a part of the identity. Which is why blessing is so important in Scripture which is why your words are really significant in Scripture, which is why blessing and cursing is so important in Scripture. It's because it's not just words. There's that dumb thing as we were kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words break my heart. Okay, that's not how it goes. But, but you realize our words influence our identity. Hey, when, when a parent comes alongside you and says, hey, I believe in you and you can do it, and, and hey, I, I'm... Hey, I'm encouraging you in this. It, it just it breathes something into you. I've been told by countless husbands that man, when their wife gets alongside them and just says, "Hey, honey, I'm I'm supporting you. I'm encouraging encouraging you." He says, "I feel like I can rise up as a leader and I can actually lead my family." But when my wife is sitting there and nitpicking everything, it just it just deflates me. Isn't it interesting that your words have have power? Uh, the first time you see this idea of names or naming. Uh, of course, you see it in the creation account where, where God names things, right? He calls it the sun, the moon, and the stars. He He's doing the calling. But the first time you see this in a human sense, here's Adam, and here's all these animals. And in uh, Genesis 2.19, God takes the animals and brings them before Adam to see what he's going to name them. And so here's this big animal. and goes, what do I call that one? It's called a hippopotamus. And that was its identity, Here's this big fluffy thing, and let's call that one an ostrich. Then there's this little tiny furry creature, and the moment that it saw Adam, it just got excited, and its tail was wagging, and got, it just started, <laughs> and it runs up to Adam, and Adam goes, I'm going to call you a, yeah, a dog. Right behind that, there's this other creature who was just like, I don't really care. In fact, I don't know who you are, but I think I am God. And Adam goes, oh, we're going to call you a worthless. Oh, sorry. Yes. Sorry, cat. Yes, cat. We're going to call you Nabal. So so you you see this idea of naming uh, in Scripture. Uh, In fact, uh, you realize that names were so significant That in Scripture, when you see a name change, that becomes really, really important. For example, you have this guy by the name of Abram. And God looks at Abram and says, Abram, I'm no longer going to call you Abram. I'm going to call you? Abraham. Sarai, i want to call you? Was it that God didn't like those names? He's like, I don't like Abram. I'm going to put ham at the end. You can't eat it, but I'll let you have it on your name. Like, what? What? You'll get that later. Anyway, why why did God change the name? Why was that so significant? Do you realize? Because he's changing not just a name. He's changing character. He's changing nature. He's changing identity. When Saul became Paul, it's not because Saul goes, well, I don't like that name anymore. It's because God had so radically changed Paul's life. And my favorite picture of this in Scripture uh, is the twins. Ah, uh, one day this woman named Rebecca realizes she has a huge problem. And she goes to God and she goes, God, what is going on? And God goes, Look, inside your womb there are two nations, and they are warring one with another. And the older will serve the younger. What? I thought these were children. <laughs> the, the, sorry, they are children. But they are nations that are warring within your womb. Now, when the first one comes out, they give him a name. Do you know what name they give him? Furball. So that's what they named him. And do you know why they named him Furball? Because he was a furball. And so they gave him the name Esau. Guess what Esau means? Furball. It means hairy, but it's same concept. Do you know how hairy Esau was? Hairy. <laughs> Esau was so hairy. Think about this. Years later, Esau and Jacob are now about forty years old, and Isaac's eyes have dimmed, and he's 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 growing blind, and he realizes he's going to die, so he needs to pass off the blessing. And so he looks at Esau, the firstborn, and says, Esau, my, my son, my firstborn, go, and hey, you as the wild hunter, you as the big, beefy guy, go out there and go kill my favorite you know, thing and, and make it just how I like it, and then I will pronounce a blessing upon you. So Esau goes off to hunt. Now, Rebecca hears this whole conversation, and she goes, oh, there's the blessing about to be pronounced. Jacob, my favorite, because he was the mama's boy. Because his description is a plain man living in tents, and you look at his life, he was a mama's boy, and here he is, forty years old, living at home. Sounds like some people today, doesn't it? And (laughs) here he is, forty years old, living at home. And uh, she goes, she goes to Jacob and says, Jacob, go, and go grab a goat, and I will make it just like your dad. Dad, dad likes it, and then uh, hey, you'll go in, and you you could fake, you know, be like Esau and get the blessing. And Jacob goes, Ma, there's a problem. I don't, look like, I don't look like Esau. She goes, that's okay. We'll get some of Esau's clothes and put it on you. And that way you have his smell, which is a great thought. <laughs> uh, you, you may have to change your voice a little bit, but hey, you know, you can do this. And he goes, mom, you don't understand. If I go into dad and dad realizes it is me, he will give me a curse, not a blessing. And you've seen Esau. He lives up to his name. And so if dad brings me over and he, and he just touches anything, he'll go, mm-hmm. And he'll know I'm Jacob. Do you know what Jacob means? I'm a lying, deceiving, manipulator. And so how are we going to pull this off? His mom goes, don't worry about it. Just go get the goat. So she, he gets the goat. She makes the meal. He gets the clothes. And before he goes in, she takes the goat skin and puts it on his arms and on upon his neck. And so here's, here's Jacob, he goes into his dad, who's blind, and goes, hi, <clears throat> hi, dad. And Isaiah says, uh, who are you? <clears throat> Esau. And he says, okay, come here. And so Jacob draws near, and of course, <sniffs> well, that smells like Esau. <laughs> and it says that Isaac put his hand on the arm of Jacob and goes, <clears throat> it's my son! Have you ever seen a goat? Goats are hairy. So how hairy was Esau? Apparently hairy, which is nasty. So when Rebecca was giving birth and Esau was being born, he comes out and they go, oh, what is it? What are we going to call it? How about we call it Furball? So they gave him the name Furball. Now, when his brother, Jacob, was coming out, it says that he was holding on to the heel of his brother. Now, I cannot prove this biblically, but my personal opinion is, is that it wasn't that he was trying to hold on to his brother's ankle. It's just the fact that Esau was so hairy, he was caught in the hair and was being dragged out. But I, I, can't, I can't prove it. I just, it's just a guess. And so here's Jacob, and he's being pulled out, or he's holding on to the heel of his brother. And so when he comes out, what name do they give him? Jacob, which means what? A heel grabber. A lying, deceiving, manipulator. Isn't it interesting that you look at the life of Jacob, guess what he became? A lying, deceiving, manipulator. So it's really important then, on the night when Jacob begins to wrestle with God, right? It's an angel, but we learn later it's actually God. And in the morning, Jacob says, hey, I will not let you go until you bless me. And God looks at Jacob and says, no longer am I going to call you Jacob, the lying, deceiving, manipulator. I am now going to call you Israel, which means the prince of God or the one who wrestles, the one who travails. God says, hey, I'm changing your identity From this point forward, you're no longer going to be that manipulating, deceiving, lying, heel-grabbing Jacob that you've always been. I am changing your identity. Names are important. Uh, Do you realize that we live in a culture that loves names? Uh, For example, if you're ever you know, look at someone who's in a relationship, they always have pet names for each other. Haven't you ever noticed this? They never call each other by their real name. I don't know if I've ever heard Eric call Leslie Leslie, unless he's talking in front of like you guys. But like he'll be on the phone, and he has certain names for her. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what they are. I just, <laughs> he has names. She has names for him. In fact, Eric has names for all the kids. Like these, these, there's these pet names. But haven't you ever looked at uh, this couple who's in a relationship? They just, they have these names like Darling, Pookie, Sweetie. Uh, Here's a a list I found. Uh, Muffin, Pumpkin, Cupcake, Snickerdoodle, Honey, Sweetheart, Sweetie. Why are most of these food? (laughs) You you realize that... You realize that we have these pet names. They're not just names. It's an identity thing. I love the fact in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, uh, in one of the letters to the churches, Jesus is speaking, and he, and he says this. Listen to this. Uh, he says, To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Do you realize that God has a special name for you? Yeah, it's like he has a pet name for you. That just like someone who's in close relationship has a special name for that other person. You know, like if you have, if you have like best friends, a lot of times you, have, you make up names for each other. Like I, I had a best friend and I always called him Broski. I never used his real name. It was, hey, bro. Hey, broski. Right? Because it was, it, was it was a term of, an, of endearment. It's, it's, hey, you are my friend. It's like, you're not just someone. You're like, hey, we're buddies. It's, it's that kind of an idea. You, you realize that God has a special name for you. Why? Because he's in relationship with you. And when you are, are in relationship with God, yes, he knows your name, but it's like he has a special name just for you. Now, I don't know when that's going to be revealed. My guess is probably in eternity. But I've always wondered, it's like, wouldn't it be amazing if I could get so tight with Jesus this side of heaven that somehow I could just begin to hear him whisper my special name that nobody else knows? And like, this is his special name for me. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because I'm in relationship. Names are important. Oh, we all gather together in a, in a chapel like this and and over over here is this young, strapping-looking guy. And over here is this lovely-looking thing. You know what we're in the middle of? Right? A funeral, right? <laughs> Which is why he wears black. And, uh, yeah, it's a funeral, isn't it? Because in a wedding ceremony, the groom looks at the bride and says, Oh, I love you. And uh, I'm going to give up the rights to myself. And from this point forward, this is not going to be about me. This is not going to be my, about, about my wants or my dreams or my pleasure or my desires or my whatever. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to live for you. And she goes, oh, that's such a great idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love you too. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to die to myself. And I'm going to give up the rights to myself and my dreams and my wants and my pleasure and my desire. And I'm going to live for you. Now, isn't it interesting that by dying to themselves and living to the other person, both of them have their dreams fulfilled. Both of them have their needs met. Both of them receive pleasure. Both of them, but it's not out of, well, I demand, I deserve, I get. There's none of that in marriage. So, supposed to be. This is not, well, I did 50%, you better do 50%. Where is that biblically? This is, I will give 100% even if you give zero. This is, hey, I'm gonna die to myself. I'm gonna die to, to my desires. I'm gonna die, this is not about me. This is about you. And I'm going to die to myself and live for you. And what's amazing is when both people do that, that's a beautiful reflection of Jesus and the church. Which is why your marriage is supposed to be a demonstration, a reflection of Christ and the church. Because this is not about you. This is not about what you can get. This is not about your dreams. This is not about your pleasure. This is not about your whatever. This is about you dying to yourself and living onto somebody else. Does that make sense? Now, isn't it interesting that in the wedding ceremony, the woman takes it a step farther. She says, hey, not only am I going to die to myself and, and, and die to my wants and my dreams and my pleasure, and my, all that kind of stuff, and I'm going to live for you and your wants and your dreams and your pleasure, and, your, and hey, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to wash your feet. And, of course, he says the same thing back to her. But she says, I'm going to take it one step further. I am going to take my name and set my name aside And I am going to take on your name. Which is not just a name. It's a reputation. It's a nature. It's a character. It's an identity kind of a thing. And she says, hey, if if, if people loved you, they're going to love me too. Hey, if they despised you and they hated you, they're going to despise and hate me too. Why? Because we're coming together. And I'm going to be known by your name. And she takes on his name. Isn't that beautiful? Do you realize that we as believers are the ones who bear his name? You are known as a Christian. Which is what? One who bears his name. Which is not just a name. It's a character. It's a, it's a nature thing. It's, a, it's an identity kind of a thing. Does that make any sense to you? And you you see this all over Scripture. For for example, in Genesis chapter 1, here is God who creates Adam and Eve in his own image. And what was humanity supposed to be? They were supposed to be a reflection of the image of God. So that when the world looked upon Adam and Eve, they were to see God himself. They are not God. They are not God. But they are to reflect God. As Ian Thomas would say, Here's an invisible God who creates a visible physical world. And how on earth is a physical visible world going to see an invisible God? Well, the invisible God creates a physical visible man to show the physical visible world an invisible God. Does that make sense to you? So when the physical visible world sees the physical visible you, they are to see the invisible God being demonstrated through you. Why? Because you're the image bearer, you are not the image. You are the you are like the moon that is reflecting the light of the sun, you you are the mirror that is reflecting back the image. You are not the image, but you are the reflection of the image. Uh, you see this in the Ten Commandments. Uh, why did God give the commands? So, like, why did God look at Israel and say, "Israel, do not murder"? Israel, do not lie. Well, you know how it is. If we're going to live in community, it's, it's, a, it's a lot better if we don't kill each other. <laughs> it's really helpful if we don't lie to each other. Is that why God gave the Ten Commandments? Could I propose to you that the reason that God gave the Ten Commandments is because the Ten Commandments is a reflection of His nature. God says, "You are my people. You are the ones who bear my name. I am not a murderer says God. So guess what you can't do? You can't murder. Because when you murder, you are telling the whole world that your God is a murderer. I'm not a murderer, so therefore you can't murder. God says, I'm not a liar, so you can't lie. Because when you lie, it declares to the world that I'm a liar. I'm not a liar, so you can't lie. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a, does this make any sense? So, hey, when you look at the Ten Commandments, what you see is, is that we are to reflect the very heart and the nature of our God. You, you, you see this even in the idea of discipleship. Here is Jesus who gathers these disciples around him. What was discipleship all about? <gasps> Learning, getting big notebooks. Yeah, sitting through sessions. No, not really. Really? Well, it, it, was, it was like following the steps of the master. Yeah, but not really. A disciple wasn't one that just followed the master around. A disciple's not one that just follows the teaching. A, a disciple's not one who memorizes the discourse of the teacher, of the rabbi. Do you know what a disciple is, biblically? A disciple is better understood as an apprentice. It's one who's trying to become just like the master, just like the teacher, So when Jesus gathered the 12 disciples around him, it wasn't just, you want to learn some things from me? What he was actually offering was, I want you to be just like me. I want you, the same life that I'm living, I want you to live. So, hey, you want to come and hang out and see how I think and see how I live and see how I talk and and see how I do things? Because, and it's not a mimicking thing as much as, uh, could you imagine here's this blacksmith? And this, uh, this kid comes up to the blacksmith and says, hey, I, I, I want to be a blacksmith. Blacksmith says, great. Now, again, we don't have this culture anymore. But back in the olden days, the blacksmith would look at the kid and say, great, move in. Tomorrow, I want you here with all your stuff. You're going to be in the corner, and you're going to live with me and my wife for the next five years. No, 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 no. C- can I just show up like nine to five, and you can teach me a couple things? And the blacksmith says, that's not going to work. You'll never become a blacksmith. Well, yeah, but that's when you do your blacksmith stuff, isn't it? Yeah, but if you actually want to know what it means to be a blacksmith, it's not just the time in the in the smithy. It's the time that I spend m- with my wife, and it's how I sleep, and it's how I eat, and it's how I—everything I do is influencing me being a blacksmith. So if you're going to be a blacksmith, you've got to move in with me and live and think and talk and behave just like I do if you want to be a blacksmith. That's the idea of discipleship. The discipleship is not just teaching. It's not just following the rules. It's not just big notebooks. It's not just— Sitting through sessions. What is discipleship? Being just like the master. See, you are to reflect him. That when the world looks at you, they should go, wow, you're a disciple. Why? You look just like Jesus. Now we know you're not Jesus, but you look just like him. Because you're the one who bears his name. Let me give you a couple of verses really quick. First John 4:17. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Do you hear that? That his life and ha- as he is, that is the exact same fashion and manner that we are to be in this world. John 15 verse 20, remember the word I said to you, says Jesus. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Why? Because you're bearing his identity. That you're bearing his name, his character, and how they treated him is going to be how they treat you. Why? Because you are reflecting him. I love this. Romans 8, 29. This is such a powerful verse. Romans eight twenty nine. for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That word conformed uh, has a similar idea of symmetry. It's, it's like the Greek word it has this idea of symmetry. In other words, in the exact likeness, uh, it has this idea of, hey, if you're going to be conformed, it's like uh, transformed is to be to take the form and change it conformed is that you're gonna take that form and shove it into something Is kind of the idea have you ever played with play-doh none of you were willing to admit it okay when we were when we were little kids so last week right we grabbed some play-doh and uh, haven't you ever taken those play-dohs and those little shapes and you took the play-doh and you shoved it into the mold do you know what that's called conforming it do you know what god wants to do in your life take you as clay and as the potter he wants to shove you into a mold called jesus and anything that doesn't match that mold has to has to leave has to fall away has to be cut off and what does your life look like jesus now you're not jesus praise the lord but we're not only filled with the Spirit, but He is conforming us. He's sanctifying us. He's shoving us into a mold called Jesus so that your life looks like Him because you bear His name. Well, I don't, I don't want to be conformed. Then don't bear His name. Don't be a Christian because if you're a Christian, He's going to shove you into a mold called Jesus so that you start to think like and act like and talk like and 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Oh, love this. 2 Peter verse 1, or sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. One of my all-time favorite verses. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that get this. Here's the whole purpose of it so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you know what God is doing in your life? He is shoving you into a mold called Jesus. He is conforming you into his image. He is allowing you to be a partaker of the divine image. Do you know what you are? You're a name bearer. You're a reflection of him which means his life and his character and his identity. Do you, do you realize you're, you're supposed to reflect that out of your life? Jesus never thought about himself. He was never selfish. He was always humble. He was always meek. He was always gentle. He was always loving. Does that, does that describe your life? You look at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit right? Our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You realize that these are fruits of the spirit. These are the attributes of Jesus, folks. This isn't, all right, I'm going to produce some fruit. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to pull this thing off. This is, hey, would you get tight with Jesus? Because this stuff's going to start coming out of you as fruit. Why? Because this is his nature. Does that list describe you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or does the list right before that describe your life? The works of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh? Envy, pride, drunkenness, impurity, frustration. You start going down to that list and you start to realize that describes most people in this world. Why? Because that's the fruit of the flesh. But my life's not to reflect the fruit of the flesh. My life is supposed to reflect the fruit of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit. Is that true in your life? when you look at Philippians chapter 2, and we're not going to do that, but if you looked at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says that you're to have this mind, this attitude, this this focus, this orientation that Jesus had. And then in verse 6 through 8, it begins to describe this focus, this orientation of living that Jesus had. That, hey, he was a servant. That he was humble. He was obedient even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Does that describe your life? That if your life is going to reflect Jesus, do you realize that You're going to have to be humble, that you can't be selfish and self-focused, that you are going to have to stoop and be obedient and submissive to the will of the Father. Does that describe you? Think about what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I am bowing my knees to the Father from whom we all derive our name. And yet, it's in the context of fatherhood, but isn't it interesting that that all of us as believers are to be the bearers of the name of Jesus? We are all Christians. We are to bear the character and the nature, the identity of our God. You don't become God. So please don't get that confused. So you don't become God. But do you realize that you are to be Christ-like, that you are to be godly in this godless age, that he wants... to conform you to the image of his Son, that he has transferred you from the domain of darkness and brought you in the kingdom of his beloved Son, that he's wanting to do a great work in your life so that you begin to reflect the reality of Jesus. So when the world looks at you, they go, wow, I'm seeing God. I mean, I'm not seeing God because you're not God, but wow, I'm seeing God through you. And you are like the visible, physical representation of the invisible to my, to my, to my eyesight. Is that true about your life? Here's a quick question. How on earth are we going to pull that off? Because you can't. You can grit your teeth, you can attempt and try and struggle, but there is no way you can ever reflect the reality of Jesus in your life. But I'm called to it. So, you know what the secret is? Jesus. Because on my own, I can't do this. Which means I need him. I need him smack dab in the middle of my life. I, I, I need the spirit of God producing this thing in my life. That if the world's going to see God through my life, then they better see God in my life. Because I, I, I'll never be able to behave and talk and think properly without him. So the only way I can live the way I ought to live is I, got, I need to embrace the one who is. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be amazing if, if all the effort that you've been giving, you could just relax from? Because this wasn't about your effort. This wasn't about your struggle. This wasn't about your striving. This is about your submission, your surrender to a living God. And you became the vessel through which God wanted to flow his life through. Or, as I mentioned the other day, as Ian Thomas said, you can't. But he never said you could. He will, and he always said that he would. Do you realize that's true? You can't. But biblically, he said it's impossible. But he will do this in and through you if you'll let him. If you would live a surrendered, submissive life and say, Lord, here's a vessel, it's called my life, whatever you want to do, here I am. Do it. Would you showcase your life and your nature through me? Wouldn't it be neat if this world saw God sitting upon the throne of the universe once again because they saw him in you? You have been named. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we thank you that we don't bear our own names. We don't have to bear our own identities. We can bear the reality of Jesus. Lord, what would it look like if this wasn't about us and our accomplishments and our trials and and our struggling, and our attempting to be godly? What if this was about surrendering to you and letting you be God in and through our lives? And we understand that we, we got to obey. We got we understand we got to walk, walk this thing out. We understand we're fully participating but Lord, what if this wasn't about my effort and my talent and my wisdom? What if this was all about you? Lord, it mind boggles me that you have named us, that we get to be the ones who bear your name. We get to be known as Christians. And Lord, that name has fallen in the streets in today's culture. That name is a, is, is a place of mockery and shame in this culture. And Lord, I, I am pleading with you that you would restore your name in this generation. That the name Christian wouldn't just be, yeah, that weird group of people who are mean and nasty. Yeah, it's that group of people who tip horribly. Yeah, it's that group of people who who talk a big talk, but they live a hypocritical life. Lord, could we even, those who are listening this morning, could we be the ones who bear your name in such a way your nature and your character and your identity is once again seen that we are not living for ourselves we are surrendered to you and you will begin to live your life in and through us lord could we be the physical visible representation of the invisible to our world could this world behold you in a phenomenal way because they see you in every aspect of our lives Lord we want to be Christians in the fullest sense of that name love it, Jesus thank you for that opportunity just give you the praise and the glory in your precious name we pray amen thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson if you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.